This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 62, Splendor in the Dark, After Hours with Dr. Jerry Root. Well, good morning, everyone, wherever you are. It's actually good afternoon for me on the hottest day in the year in England. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where I, Matt, and David break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. We're currently in Poetry Month this August. We began with the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geit talking about poetry in general. Then David interviewed Dr. Don W. King, giving an overview of Lewis's poetic corpus. And then he also interviewed Karen Swallow Pryor about Lewis's first published work, Spirits in Bondage. Dr. Pryor recently did an updated version of that. And today we're going to look at Lewis's second major work, book of poetry, Dimer. And guiding us through that work is Dr. Jerry Root. Dr. Root is a graduate of Whittier College and Talbot Graduate School of Theology at Biola University, both located in Southern California. He received his PhD from the Open University through the Oxford Center for Mission Studies. He and his wife, Claudia, have four grown children, all of whom are married, and 15 grandchildren. His quiver is full. Dr. Root has written many articles about Lewis, lectured on him at, the, at 78 universities, in 18 different countries, and is a popular speaker on Lewis's, at Lewis conferences around the world. He's compelling. I always love hearing him speak, and the hour goes as if it were mere moments. He's the author and edit- editor of many important works, C.S. Lewis and a Problem of Evil, an Investigation of a Pervasive Theme, The Quotable Lewis, which should be known by many of you, and if not, go out and get a copy, The Sacrament of Evangelism, the surprising imagination of C.S. Lewis, and the neglected C.S. Lewis, and most recently, the book that concerns today's subject, Splendor in the Dark, C.S. Lewis's Dimer in His Life and Works. Dr. Rook, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's great to be with you. And you, you said compelling speaker. You're the compelling speaker. I sit on the edge of my seat every time I hear you talk. You signed a poster of my talk at the uh, the Bakke Auditorium, and it says mesmerizing. And that uh, framed poster is next to my next to my desk to encourage me to finish my book until we have faces. But I I sit down to listen to you, and I'm so drawn, and the hour just disappears. You're talking Camp Allen. I think, like Lewis said of one of his friends, you can't can't speak on a topic without without illuminating it. And so it's just a joy to have. Yeah, but the key, the key for me, though, is I just stay close to Lewis. I just quote Lewis. I know Lewis works, so I'll be okay if I stay close to him. That's a good policy. I'm smoking <laughs> a pipe today because you told me that we were smoking pipes. So I packed my pipes to England. I found a spot outside in the blistering heat. Uh, and uh, so we'll have to share a pipe again sometime. I'm eager. I'm eager. I would be smoking a pipe, but I'm inside. My wife doesn't mind me smoking in our garden, but. Not in the house. I'm in my pub, though. I'm in oh, my, pub, my basement. I have an Irish pub. You do, and many people have been in that pub. Who's been there? Well, Hooper, Geit, um, uh, Michael Ward, Mo- Andrew Lazo, uh, virtually everybody. Don King. Um, yep. The people you've mentioned, you know. Uh, so most of the people. Did you say Oz? Oz Guinness? Has Oz been, Guinness, yeah. Yeah. But mo- most, I mean, there's been all kinds of people. David Brooks, the uh, New York Times 
um, reporter and so on. All, all kinds of people have been in this pub. You know, oh, people, I, I don't think they come here to see me and I don't think they come here to uh, talk about Lewis. I think they come here because I keep some good stuff on the shelf. <laughs> Do you have some good stuff with you? What are we drinking? Uh, I've, got a, I've got a Glenlivet 21, the archive. And uh, I don't have very much because it's very early in the morning for me. But it must be five o'clock somewhere, so it must be okay. <laughs> it's pretty close. I'm drinking, uh, I'm here in England, and I f just found at the shops today at the Tesco, I found Old Crafty Hen. Old Speckled Hen is a, a, a nice uh, amber ale that, uh, that Malcolm Geit uh, first introduced me to. And I've never had a chance to get some Old Crafty. So uh, today we'll be uh, toasting all of our Patreon supporters. And so from Lewis's home here in Oxford, uh, from the music room right behind me and from Chicago, we say cheers. Cheers. Well, Jerry, thanks again for joining us and for getting up early. Tell us a little bit about yourself uh, for our listeners. We've got avid supporters of Lewis, and we're in our fifth season now, having done Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, Till We Have Faces, Screwtape Letters, and we're at the, at the end of The Four Loves. And so... Your work will probably be known to a lot of our, our folks, but uh, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background with Lewis. Well, I didn't start out with any academic interests, that's for sure. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I played high school football with guys that got free color televisions during the Watts riots, if you catch my drift. And a guy was shot in the leg right down the street from my house. I had no academic interest when I went to college. You have to take it by faith now, but I played football. But right when I got to college, I was invited to a Christian gathering on campus and I heard the gospel and I was so overwhelmed with it and found it compelling. So I trusted Christ. That year, I thought if I'm a responsible Christian, then I should know the Bible. So I read through the Bible and my mind started to wake up. I was so excited about what I had discovered in the gospel. I started talking to the guys I played football with about. Christ, and they were asking questions I never even thought to ask growing up. I, I hate to confess it, but I never once even asked the question, if God is good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the universe? It's important to me. I've since written a book about it on Lewis and the problem of evil. But I started digging for answers because I thought this was important and I should try to find them for my friends. And I keep seeing this name crop up in the literature, C.S. Lewis. My older sister was teaching fifth grade. And she said to me, Jerry, I'm reading this book to my fifth grade kids. It's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She told me the story of the plot of that book. I went out and bought a set, read them. I said, I got to find out more about this guy. I read Surprised by Joy. And he talked about the longing and how that prodded him to try and find the object of his longing. I knew the longings, but nobody ever gave me such a vocabulary for my soul like Lewis did. I started reading him voraciously, and when I got ready to graduate from college, a man wisely said to me, you do not get an education in college. You merely lay a foundation for one. In America, we call the graduation ceremony commencement, which means you will now commence your education by building on that foundation. This guy said, pick an author and make him your life study. He could have said, pick a composer, pick a period of history, pick an artist, a country. I picked Lewis. I go to seminary. I have to write a thesis. There's no way I was going to write it on the use of the optative mood in the Greek text of the book of Philemon. So I asked if I could write on Lewis. They said, yeah. So it was the first time I put pen to paper. And then it ended up later, I did my PhD on C.S. Lewis as well. 
And like you said, I've, I've, I've actually lectured on him in 79 universities in 19 countries, and I've got my 80th coming up pretty quick. But the deal is, I, 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 if nobody was interested, I'd still be all in. I don't just read Lewis. I read the books that influenced him. I'm fascinated by all of that. And he's been a liberal arts education to me because he opens more than wardrobe doors. And he's taken yes. me all kinds of places. I feel like I owe him an incredible debt. Yes. Well, it's what Lewis uh, said, I think, of, of McDonald, right? I owe him as much as one man can owe another. And I've heard you tell that story. And that gave me a framework for my own education. We first met uh, when I was working on a master's degree, but I realized that I had done classics and I had done medieval literature and Renaissance literature and modernist literature in the arc that you describe. Reading Lewis has given me the whole kind of canon of Western Western yeah. literature and Western thought. Yeah. And you've been a great inspiration to me about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's breathtaking, actually. It doesn't mean you always agree with them, but whenever I disagree with Lewis, I have enough hermeneutical suspicion about my own views to wonder if maybe I'm the one that's got it wrong. Well, and even uh, even what is Lewis says a similar thing with uh, with Kirkpatrick. His his punches began to have some weight behind him after you know he. I don't think he ever won an argument with Kirkpatrick, but he learned how to. Uh, he, he learned his way around around the argumentative field. And I just you know for somebody with the incredible memory and the incredible education. Can you imagine having argued with him at the Socratic Club or anywhere else? He's got all of Western lit memorized. He was a convinced believer after being a convinced atheist. I mean, I, that must have been a sight to behold. Well, the other thing, too, when you talk about argument, he, he acknowledges his debt of learning logic under Kirkpatrick. But you can see a model for argumentation in the book that he produced with E.M.W. Tilliard called The Personal Heresy. In that academic debate, you can't find a single ad hominem. The, the informal fallacies are basically absent from that debate. It's a debate that produces light, not heat. Both of the disputants are able to concede points when they're well made by the other side, and each of them is able to advance the understanding so it produces this kind of academic light. It's a wonderful model for a world where People just dig in at a place and then become self-referential, very subjectivistic, and dismiss anybody who doesn't see it their way. And they end up deculturalizing themselves. It's almost a picture of hell, basically. Hell is isolation. And consequently, um, Lewis shows us something better, far more robust and good. Well, and as, as I've mentioned more than once, that's a service that you've certainly given to me over the years. Um, we've been meeting together for lunch and for good talks since 1997. So wow. we're a good, what, um, uh, 25 years in. And, wow. uh, and I finally knew that I, was, I had a valid point if I could argue it with you and, and come to some point, at least some point of agreement. And then I can still remember where we were sitting and almost what we had for dessert, the, uh, the lunchtime where I, where I, where you conceded a point. And so it always felt like having a viva, having a, a, a final PhD exam when I came to you and we would argue. And if I could at least hold my own, uh, but I always learned more than I, uh, than I was able to say. Well, the troubling thing about that, Andrew, is you keep holding your own more frequently. <laughs> you're, I've been well taught by you, my friend. I've been well taught. <laughs> 
So I had a great session uh, just yesterday in the kilns in the common room with Simon Horobin. Do you know Simon? Uh, name's familiar. Maybe we do. He's a maudlin English professor, a maudlin med- medievalist, and he's uh, enraptured with Lewis and doing work on Lewis. He's about to put out a book on Lewis's, uh, Lewis and and Maudlin, and he's working on Lewis's annotations to literary works. And so wow. he's been a very good friend to Lewis folks. And we had uh, five years ago, a great t- talk in the common room. And uh, it just, it was wonderful to talk through some things and to see how Lewis kind of all comes together. Yeah. But that's the topic for another podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's great good. Year. I'm eager for his book to come out. I want to read it. He offered to, to let me see a copy and and asked for some some help and, you know, in case there were any, any miscues, because he, he uses a lot of the published sources and biographies, but as we know, so many of those get things wrong. Yeah. And uh, so I'm going to do what I can to, to help. But well, I want to hear more about Dimer. And I want to hear about Dimer in two ways. I'd like to hear about Lewis's poem, why you think it's so important. And I agree with you, um, what position it has, what influence it has, all of that. Um, but I also want to hear, um, hear about Splendor in the Dark and why that book, in, which contains Dimer, but also contains your Hanson lectures on it and people's responses, why that book is a really helpful tool. So let's start there. Tell us about Splendor in the Dark, and then let, we'll spend, spend the rest of the time uh, going into Dimer, if you don't mind. Well, the Wade Center has a, the Wade Center, it's the largest collection of Lewis material in the world, and they have the Hanson lectures every year. And they'll have a faculty member at Wheaton College um, give the lectures, and they have respondents, and they have three lectures. And they asked me to do one, a series of lectures on Lewis. And I said, well, I don't like to explore the stuff that people keep going over and over and over again. I always think there's new things that could be discovered and new things do come to light. But I, I like to explore the places where people, people are not attending and they're not uh, attuned to them. So I said, I'd like to do Dimer. I think Dimer is an important book. I've read it over and over again. It was one of the two books that he published before. He was a Christian. They're both poems. Spirits and Bondage, of course, are lyric poems. Dimer is a long narrative poem, 100-page page poem. And I said, I think I can see things in that, in that poem that show us where Lewis was coming from, particularly his interest in uh, Norse mythology and so on. Certainly the longings come through, the idea of pilgrimage comes through. But also you can see in seed in that book um, some places that are going to flourish once he comes to faith. And so I, I wanted to go that route. And, and I ended up then taking uh, one particular um, canto, canto five, and one stanza in canto five, uh, number 29. And he said several things in there, but three lines became the three titles of my lectures. The first one is A Splendor in the Dark, A Tale, A Song. So the first lecture is basically laying out the story. And I love the story, actually. And, and Lewis says a, a myth, and it's myth-like, has, has the power of engaging us in the story, and we go back to it uh, like we go to a garden for the aroma, for the for the enjoyment of the, the flavor, so to speak. So I lay, lay forth the story itself. And then, um, and it's a story of pilgrimage about a guy named Dimer, who, who is raised in this sort of 
a tyrannical city. Uh, it was a city designed by Platonists, which, which is also very interesting. Many people accuse Lewis of being a Platonist. If they read this very early book, they would see that he was not, because he said the Platonists designed this city and they tortured into stone the bubbles the academy had blown. Mm. Never does the academy make worse mistakes than when they make rigid their pronouncements as if that's a last word about anything. Even in the discarded image, Lewis talks about Galileo and the reason why the church was so upset about Galileo wasn't his, uh, his geocentrism as opposed to heliocentrism. They were opposed to him because of his theory of theories that he thought he had said a last word that the planets went around the sun in a circle. In Galileo's own lifetime, Kepler comes on the scene and says, no, it's not a circle, it's an ellipsis. So, so here's Lewis, who's already got the sense that the Academy of often overplay their hand. And, and consequently, Dimer, who's raised in the city, is in a lecture hall being indoctrinated, and he looks out a window, and it's a spring day, and there's a bird on the windowsill. And the poem says, who could ever legislate spring? And the real world drives him out of the city. He actually goes up and kills the lecturer. I don't like my students reading this book. I don't want them to get <laughs> bad ideas. And, and he bolts, he bolts, and he goes on this pilgrimage. Even, even Lewis says, my hero was to be a man escaping from illusions. And that concept of escape is really important. We'll talk about that later if we can. And then the next chapter, brooding alone beneath the strength of things, from that same from that same Canto five uh, stanza twenty nine, brooding alone beneath the strength of things. I saw so many things embedded in this poem that were early on in evidence in Lewis's life and drove him, and I think many of them drove him to faith, and found he found the answers to these questions in his faith. And then the last Canto or the last phrase from that canto, out of old fields, the flowers of unborn springs. And again, I saw the flowers of springs that were yet to come in this particular book. So anyway, I gave these lectures. Each one was responded to by a professor at Wheaton College. Uh, Jeff Davis, who's the Dean of Humanities, responded to the first one. Uh, uh, Mike, Mark Lewis, who's the theater professor at Wheaton, the next one. And Miho Nanaka, who's an English prof, responded to the third one. None of them liked the poem. <laughs> I'm the only one of the group that liked the poem. And, and Jeff Davis, I don't know if I've ever laughed so hard in my life as I did when he was reacting to my, my, uh, lecture. Though, though he's, he said he thought that my lecture was better than Lewis's book. So <laughs> I, I think that he's wrong. I think he's wrong, of course. But he said the greatest thing. That's what good criticism should do. He said the greatest thing about Dimer is that it drove Lewis from writing poetry and gave the world a great prose writer. <laughs> so I, I, oh I, I, I disagree with this criticism, but Jeff, all, all the respondents were so funny. And, and, and again, it's good dialectical engagement when you have people. And, they, and it was nice that, that uh, InterVarsity Press published uh, the, the responses with all the humor and, and, and all the critique and criticism they did. So it was good, good engagement. I love it. And what do you think of David Downing's annota annotations to that poem? 
Well, they're helpful. I, they're helpful. Um, I think even there could have been even more, you know, but he, he's very thorough as, as we've come to understand David Downing is. He did a great job and it was helpful. Well, you know, in Lewis's, in the foreword to the third edition of Pilgrim's Regress, Lewis said, I wrote this poem before I knew how to make things easy. And I think that that's something that he struggled with, uh, particularly early on, maybe in the decade of the, of the, the kind of the twenties is, you know, he has these great points and he didn't know how to make them, you know, or didn't make them as clear as he could. And I think that Michael Ward's recent discoveries of the underpinning structure of Narnia and some of my work on the, the theological and emotional framework of Till We Have Faces, I think that Lewis is thinking so deeply and on such a level, and he embeds so much in his work, which is, I think, why it bears rereading, um, that sometimes even the clarity that he strives for, he doesn't quite achieve because we're not up to his game. Why should people read Dimer? Well, it's a good story. I think that's a, the best reason, probably. It's a good story. If they're interested in Lewis, I think just out of honest scholarship, they should read it because they should understand the breadth of his corpus. I a, lot of, I a lot of times see people, they'll write books on Lewis and they'll say, Lewis believed this. And I can tell you by that what books they didn't read. Yes. Instead of, instead of just toning it down a little bit and say, it would appear from this that Lewis believed that. That's an honest statement, but they're not trying to make it look like they know more than they really know. I tell you, every qualification and every move against a, a bombastic, you know, blandishment that I've had in my writing comes from hearing you say that. And so if I'm not sure of a fact, I'll make sure to, 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 to couch it in, in apt qualification because I think that people do become a little too sure of Lewis. And often as not, they're, they're, they're wrong. And it's hard to kind of pin him down. And I don't think you lose credit when you say, you know, from what I've read, this, this is what I'm seeing emerge out of the pages. That's way better. And, and, and it's honest. Where we are at a moment isn't definitive of where we'll be, hopefully, five years from now. And so yeah. consequently, it seems to me we need to have that sense of dynamic. Actually, that sense of dynamic is in Dimer itself. I really, I, well, I, I really believe this. There's nothing that Lewis has written that's been published that I haven't read over and over and over again. You know, and, and even, even English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama, it's a, almost a 700 page book. I've read it many times. I laugh my way through it. It's, it's so well written and it's clever and it opens up huge doors. I've gone and read books that he's talked about in that book, book. That, that I'm intrigued by them just by Lewis's description and so on. And as I've read through Lewis, what I've found is the biggest idea in all of his writing is this, this phrase. He uses it explicitly in several of his books. Reality is iconoclastic. Reality is iconoclastic. So an okay. iconoclast breaks idols. And consequently, um, I have an idea, an image, maybe an image of God, maybe an image of whatever. And if I hold too tightly to that image, pieces of the puzzle come together with me. The image comes with an aha moment. But if I hold too tightly to that image, it now competes against my having a growing understanding of the thing. My thinking becomes inert at that point, not dynamic. And so consequently, um, Lewis even says about his thinking of God and surprised by joy, the temples we build for him, um, he comes in and knocks down. And yes. so, because he wants to give us more of himself, basically. 
And, and yes, I, yes. you see this in the authors that influenced Lewis, too. He, he, he read Robert Browning's The Ring in the Book. It was one of his 10 favorites. It's a 500-page poem. And I read it and delighted in it. It's a great poem. But the whole poem is about reality as iconoclastic. And, and, and also Browning and, and um, Rabbi Ben Ezra says, then welcome each rebuff that turns our smoothness rough. The earth isn't smooth. We could think we have it all figured out, but it has texture, it has peaks, it has valleys. Welcome the things that help you to see it the way that it is rather than the way you have to have it be. As a matter of fact, ask yourself, why do you have to have it be that way? There's going to be some interesting discovery in that too. So here's Dimer in the city and the reality of a spring day breaks him out of the falsehood of the city. And it starts him on quest. But all through the book, He's discovering what he thought was so is not. Mm -hmm. So he enters into this castle or manor house and he, he thinks he's really brave. And all of a sudden he sees somebody coming at him and he prepares himself in fear. And he realizes he was just looking in a mirror. And of course, that concept of the mirror and discovering about ourselves, the falsehoods. I mean, you've got it until we have faces. I've heard you talk about it, Andrew. When when Tilly have faces come up, that's when our co-hosts usually take a drink because uh -huh. I mentioned it in every single episode. So in salute to that, but keep Cheers. going. There you go. The idea of the mirror where or rule discovers things about herself looking in the in the pond, you know. And how about Lewis when he's describing these despicable people in the great divorce on the bus on their way to the threshold of heaven out of hell? And he's describing them, and we're going, oh, my heavens. And then he looks down the the aisle of the bus and sees his own visage in the mirror. He's one of yes. them. It's powerful. And then and Eustace Clarence Scrub, once he's become a yes. dragon, he looks in the pond and discovers the truth about himself. Let me jump in here with this, because I want to see how this idea plays in Dimer. I've never explicitly thought about it. I don't know if you and I have talked about it. Um, one of my students uh, once pointed out that Eustace looking in the mirror and seeing how ugly he has become as the dragon and then getting dug out of his skin three times. Listeners have heard me talk about Orwall looking at the mirror, Trom holding her face up to the mirror and, and saying, who are you? And she wails and says, I am Ungot. But the irony is Ungot means love. And so in both of those instances, what you have is looking in the mirror, seeing one's own ugliness despairing of one's own ugliness and salvation or life coming from that, which is the opposite of what happens with Narcissus, right? Narcissus looks in the mirror, falls in love with how beautiful he is and dies. Eustace and even or Orwell look in the mirror, find how ugly they have become because of their selfishness and repent of or despair of or forsake their selfishness. And because of that forsaking, they live. And do you, do we find any of that in Dimer as well? Well, you, you do. It's it. One one comment first about this: self discovery brings us to a mystical moment, and we can see the horror of ourselves, and we can run to God for grace, and mm -hmm. the beginning of the process of restoring the image of Christ, which is a long process. But the other thing, though, yeah, we we the other thing we can do is rationalize how we've behaved. C.S. Lewis said, continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. And mm -hmm. Aristotle wrote about it in the ethics. He said, vice is unconscious of itself. We enter into this realm of rationalization. Aristotle coined a word, acrasia, 
Krasia uh, means to be uh, in command. Akrasia or akrasia means to lose command of my moral life because I believe the lie. So the mystical moment of seeing, I'm either going to go right or left. The grace takes me uh, towards God, and the thing that is grace-denying takes me into the dungeon of self. Well, and I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before. We've had several conversations about Till We Have Faces, and you graciously uh, let me hold forth for an hour at the Brotherhood of the Briar. There's this moment where Orwal kneels after seeing Psyche and not seeing the palace. And I think that that blindness that you mentioned, I think the blindness comes from the refusal to dance, right? The, the, the phrase, why should your heart not dance? And she refuses that steadfastly and then sees Psyche. And because of her refusal, she blinds herself because she is so self-consumed with her own self and her own vision of herself. She can't see anything outer from herself. Lucy sees because she's always concerned with loving and caring for the other. So Orwell comes to Psyche, can't see the palace, but then that night gets up, goes to the river and kneels and takes a drink. And when she looks up from her knees, then she actually sees the palace, a vision that she denies to everybody, but which is true. How does and Lucy describe her denial, though? How does he describe her denial? He says, she always left that part out. She, it's, Yeah, she's lying. Intentional. She doesn't intentional. want to admit that. And in letters to Malcolm, uh, Lewis says the body needs to pray too. And so just assuming the position of humility, of self, uh, self, uh, interesting. self-abnegation, yeah. she's granted vision just because her body is in a position of humility and she's invited beyond herself. And she steadfastly refuses that denial until the end and finally comes to this reconciliation. I want to pull into what you're saying, that great quote from that Lewis wrote in Enjoy Davidman's Great Divorce. You know this one I'm talking about? Yeah, from an, unwritten book, from an unwritten book on iconoclasm. Exactly. But he, he said, I want God, not my idea of God. Yeah, there are three images that I must continually forsake and replace yeah. with better ones. The my idea of, of God, yeah, or my idea. image of God, yeah. my image of my, my neighbor, and my image of myself. myself. And, and, and that's that, right where Dimer's struggling, right? Well, that's reality as iconoclastic. So what happens in Dimer, he thinks he's brave. He's not. He has a tryst with this woman in the dark. Uh, he leaves and realizes he never even learned her name. He tries to go back, and there's an old hag standing at the door. He thinks he's tough and robust. He can't get back into the castle, and he finds out he's a wimp. He's going along. He's kind of licking his wounds, and he comes upon a, a young man who's been blinded by a battle, and his arms and legs are cut off. He's bleeding to death, and Dimer starts talking to him to hear his story, and he finds out that after he bolted from the city, uh, a, a rebel rouser named Bran has created a, an insurrection all in Dimer's name. Dimer didn't intend that. And this guy's telling the story and he he's cursing the name of Dimer. And Dimer's saying, wait a minute, this, this can't be. It's different. The reality was different than how he conceived himself. He ends up seeing a lark and all of a sudden somebody shoots the lark. And he finds himself at the house of the man who shot the lark, who's a magician. And in the, this magician's house is cloaked by shrubs that hides it. There's a bell tower, and in the bell tower, the clock's not working. 
And he goes in and this magician is trying to get him to dream dreams about the woman he'd had the tryst with and so on. And all of a sudden, Dimer has a sense of thirst and the thirst of the real world, like the spring day in the city, has awakened him to reality. Reality is iconoclastic. It breaks the false notions. And finally, he has to find out that that even the, the gods who he's kind of upset about, he encounters this goddess. And he finds out that the, that, that the gods mean more for him than he realizes. And he realizes that in that tryst, he begat a monster. And he has to go fight the monster and he, he loses the battle. And, and consequently, again, reality is iconic. The, it, it runs through the whole book, the whole book, but sure. then it runs through the whole corpus of Lewis because yeah. it's, it's the way life is. And, and we can either lean into it and have a constant sense of wonder and awe because the world's always bigger than we thought it was, or we fight against it and we try to keep ourselves in our own hell our own prison of self. And what does Problem of Pain say? The gates of hell are locked. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. It's not the only place where it says it. The book of Job says it in chapter 20 or 21. Those going to Sheol say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of thy ways. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's, it's a biblical concept. You see it in the last battle with the dwarves. The dwarves won't receive the reality of, he of Aslan's country and Aslan yeah. himself and the wonderful feast because the dwarves are facing inwards, chanting, the dwarves are for the dwarves. <laughs> the opposite of love, right. the opposite of God is self, right? And you, saw, you see that in The Great Divorce, which is Matt and David's favorite book. And they say it's Lewis's best book, but I'm going to agree with Lewis uh, that, that Till We Have Faces was far and away his best book. That idea of all reality is iconoclastic, I learned from you not only to notice that everywhere, but that if a theme is important to Lewis, it's going to sound in all of his works. And your, uh, your tracing of that through not only Dimer, but everywhere else has been a, a, a foundation stone for me in my own work to say, to agree with Barfield that anything, what Lewis thought about anything is, uh, is, is represented in everything that he, that he wrote. And that theme you know, sounds its way through. And it's that turning from self and turning towards the other and the outer, as Lewis says in the audio talks of the four loves. And that move is difficult for Lewis. It's astoundingly difficult. And it's what Dimer, I don't think, can ever get past. I, I think it becomes less difficult because his heart's full of wonder and awe and curiosity. But that happens after the very difficult and despairing conversion yeah. to posit anything outside of himself. Yeah. When he moves himself to love, and that's what one of the things I've argued on this podcast is the, the, the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is self. Yeah, I think right? so. The opposite of love is me. The opposite of God is not the devil. The opposite of God is me. And the opposite of me is going, as Lewis says in The Four Loves, out of myself towards the other. And even in Dimer, you see these things calling forth. Um, the modernists, of, of whom I would count Lewis as one, in a very conditional way, said no images but in things, right? Um, all reality is iconoclastic. And I think that Lewis is breathing this stuff and he's got these images, but when he finally turns and admits that there's something beyond himself, that's when everything comes true for him. The thing is, this, is, this occurs even in his literary criticism. So very early on in a lecture he gave in the 
1930s, he hadn't been a Christian, but about four years. He said to his students in the, in the, it's, it's recorded in the essay, um, on the English syllabus, but it was a lecture he gave at Oxford. We have fulfilled our whole duty to you if we can help you see some tract of reality. In other words, to see something different from yourself so you can begin to understand yourself, contextualize. At the end of his literary critical work, um, one of the last books he writes, his sort of refined and most honed work on literary criticism is called An Experiment in Criticism. And in the epilogue, on page 138, actually, he says, in coming to understand anything, I must reject the facts as they are for me in favor of the facts as they are. And then he ends that book, you know, my own eyes are not enough for me. I would see what others have seen. Other eyes. Yeah, I, I, I would read what others have written. I would even, even that's not enough. I would read what they've imagined. Even that's not enough. I regret that the brutes cannot write books. Gladly how I would see how the world comes to the eye of a mouse or a bee or how it comes charged the olfactory sense of a dog. But what does he say? In one of his essays, he ends it by saying this, all academic study should end in doubt. He's Mm. not saying, he's not saying we should throw out everything. He's saying we should know that we haven't gotten to the bottom of the thing or seen all of its applications. So Lewis writes with confidence because he does see that he could have a sure word about something. But he writes with the humility of knowing he hasn't arrived at the last word of that thing, nor seen all of its possible applications. That is a very good posture for anybody doing academic work. Be confident in what you've really thoroughly studied and recognize there's more. Well, and all academic studies should end in doubt. This idea of, yes, I have all of this stuff, and yet I'm not so sure that there must be something outside of myself that knows more than me, you know, and he, you know, he talks about coming to the absolute and coming to posit something that is beyond himself. And solipsism is his last philosophical, maybe even religious stance before his conversion to theism. And that's why it's such a difficulty for him to kneel and pray and to admit that God is God because he has to posit something outside of himself. And I think in some ways, joy coming crashing in at the end of his life, the person joy, um, is this, well, and she calls him my great Antarctica, my newfound land of woman killing frost. And she gets beyond him, his, his Christian self, and calls forth his true emotional, sexual, romantic, emotional human self. And I think that in some ways, Lewis finds uh, an integration of himself in joy because she calls him out of himself. And that journey in some ways starts at least in print, in Dimer. I I would probably be a little more guarded than that. I would say joy was an important fabric in these realizations. I mean, excuse me, important thread in the growing fabric, but there are many threads. So you could even go back to Dimer and he's understanding some of these things in Dimer. I know people have read, uh, written about uh, a grief observed, and they want to say, "Oh man, here, here's here's Lewis. All of a sudden, he moves from uh, the problem of pain, where it's all an intellectual exercise." I even read in one book, the guy had come to midlife and had never suffered. I go, "Well, there's a person who hasn't read about Lewis, who's you know uh, wounded in World War One, whose mom died when he was a kid, and all this other stuff. He suffered a lot." 
So, but a grief observed, you read that book. If you go back and read the letters that he wrote to Sheldon von Alken after his wife died, almost everything in a grief observed is anticipated in those letters. Lewis is done thinking about yes. these things. So yes. his friend's wife dies, and now it becomes more robust, his understanding. He marries Joy, and the things that have always been percolating become more robust. So it's an important thread, but it's a thread in a fabric. And Lewis is a whole person that's been developing. Without question. We just actually finished up Severe Mercy Month. And so Matt and I went through that whole book. And then we uh, had the delightful Will Voss on to talk about that. And yeah, it's absolutely anticipatory of him being called out of himself and 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 pointing towards so much more. And so, yeah, I don't think that the joy is the be all and end all, but I think that she serves as an important. She's important, part. very important. And listeners, what you're getting is the is exactly what what uh, what Jerry and I do at lunch. And so, um, I, we're we're delighted to have you peek in. Yes, she's a, she's a factor, but in some ways, she's a capstone, and she really shifts things. So, I've just published an, an article in Paracresis about Lewis's autobiographical arc. And inspired by you and many others, I look at how Lewis's autobiography, his actual written autobiography, takes place over the course of his whole life. So he begins writing Dimer very early. And there's that 1924 poem, Joy. He's always trying to get at this story of joy. But I think that joy, in essence, is Lewis describing his own longings. And the autobiographical shift, which begins in published form in Spirits and Bondage. But I think that Dimer tells that same autobiographical story of Lewis's search for joy. But joy is internal and joy is about Lewis. And at the end of Surprised by Joy, which Joy Davidman types up, he says, what then of joy? It serves only as a signpost to something other and outer. And his comment, I think, is very telling to Neville Coghill, where he says, I'm surprised to find that the happiness that passed me by in my 20s, when he wrote Dimer, by finding the happiness that passed me, finding in my 60s, the happiness that passed me by in my 20s. So I think that joy comes to really kind of coalesce all of this. And Lewis wasn't as interested in joy as he was in love. And I think that it's primarily, or at least significantly, because love calls Lewis out of himself and joy gets past Lewis or pulls Lewis out of himself in a way that that other things did, but nobody did in one person. And I think that's what kind of shifts him. And then I agree with Alistair McGrath that A Grief Observed is kind of his last installment of autobiography. But the true shift comes, I think, until we have faces, where Lewis has kind of abandoned self and looks towards the other. And that's Orwell's great problem. That starts in print, in some ways, in Dimer. The, the thing is, the, the concept of love has to really be focused and clarified, I think, because um, it's more Augustinian, ordo amorous, ordered love. So he's got mm -hmm. first love. It's not joy, and it's not some concept of love. It's his love for God. He even One of the last things he writes is this letter to a little girl in America. Her name was Ruth. Within three weeks of his death, and he says right. his word to her, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much will go wrong with you, and I pray you may always do so. But you also recognize that all these threads that are forming this fabric you're describing, his mind is like a funnel. And at the wide end of the funnel, you've got all these influences, not the least of which is also Dante. You're, you're having poetry month. His favorite uh, lyric poet was George Herbert. His favorite poet was Dante. 
So here's Dante who writes first the Vita Nuova. He's trying to understand what does it mean that I've met Beatrice Portinari on the Ponte Vecchio in Florence over the Arno. And as you and I discussed the other day, this poem, the Vita Nuova, is something that Lewis discusses and quotes from in Early Prose Joy, one of his first autobiographical attempts after his conversion. But keep going. Well, the thing is, though, he's trying to figure it out. 25 years after he writes the Vita Nuova, New Life, he writes about the Divine Comedy, and there's a lot of adventures in the Divine Comedy, but Virgil, the poet who was most influential on Dante, leads Dante through the Inferno, halfway through the Purgatorio. Beatrice, who's died, comes out of heaven, collects him. It's, it's you know, you can see the influence of the great divorce from Dante in this book. And finally, she leads him into the Paradiso to the threshold of the very vision of God. And Dante writes, she turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. And there it is, bingo for Dante. The love that awakened in first love was a love that was driving him towards his ultimate first love, which was God. So Lewis, at the very end of A Grief Observed, the last lines in that book, he's writing in Italian. She turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. Yeah. You, 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 and you go to the allegory of love where Lewis drives you to read Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida. Everybody reads the most bawdy of the Pilgrim's re, uh, progress in school. They don't read the really deep spiritual ones because, we, you know, we've got the separation of church and state. We can't do that. You read, you read Troilus and Cressida. Chaucer starts out asking prayer five times for people. Pray that I'll tell the story well. Pray for people in love that they'll stay in love. Pray for people that aren't in love, that they'll find love. Pray for people who have unrequited love, that will be satisfied. Pray for those who have fallen out of love, that they will find love again. And at the very end of that incredible story, one of the best love stories I've ever read in my life, I finished it on an airplane weeping. Lewis took me to it. And I, I'm, I'm a high T on the Myers-Briggs. I'm not supposed to do this. I scrunched down on my seat. It wasn't a full flight. I wasn't embarrassed by the tears, but I knew I couldn't do justice to the story if somebody asked me, why are you crying? I couldn't tell them about this world I've been living in for the last two weeks. He ends the, the whole story with this word, blessed Jesus, turn our loves to thee. And, and, and we can talk about uh, joy. We could talk about Dante. We could talk about uh, what he learned in Dimer, what he learned in the different experiences in his life and so on. But if we don't say, blessed Jesus, turn our loves to thee, we missed Lewis completely. And I think that that brings up a really important point. I'm just reading right now, I'm, I'm peer reviewing an article for, for Early Prose Joy, and it's talking about the dating of the conversion. And, you know, I've been, you know, waist deep in all of that. But this idea of turning I think that, that Walter Hooper's brilliant comment really here uh, comes to play. He says, Lewis was the most thoroughly converted man that I had ever met. And if you look at that word converted, it comes from verto to, to turn, to veer. If you're in the Anglican or Catholic tradition, a verger is somebody who turns you the right way. And to convert means to turn with. And so Walter, I think, is right. Um, to turn with, if Lewis is thoroughly converted, he has learned to keep turning, turning from self towards God, keep turning towards Jesus. And, and that's in that, give that quote again. Oh, blessed Jesus, turn our loves to thee. Turn our loves to thee. Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida. Um, by, by the way, this again goes back to Dimer. 
because when Lewis Lewis uh, published a book in 1926, but he does a another edition comes out in 1950, and he mm-hmm. says the publishers wanted to resurrect this book. I think it might have been better off if they left it in its grave. But he says if they're going to do it, let me at least give a preface. I wrote this before as a believer, all that stuff, and he says. The whole point was my hero was a man escaping from illusion. And this is the point. And the idea of escape, if you read Lewis and Tolkien on fairy stories, they talk about two yes. kinds of escape. The escape of the of the deserter who wants to leave responsibilities or the escape of the prisoner. In a materialist age, there's some, some imprisonment that's going on. We need to awaken to the transcendent and the operations of the divine in our world. As I think of files and moonless nights that, you know, favor the escape. Yeah. So, so the idea of escaping, he escapes from illusion, but he escapes to a pilgrimage. And he's engaged in this pilgrimage. Uh, the vision of the real world, the spring, the thirst, awakening from the magician's false dreams. And you can compare him almost to John, who would be the pilgrim in the first book he writes after he's a Christian. He writes this book one year after his conversion. He writes it in three weeks while vacationing in Ireland with Arthur Greaves. They mustn't have talked about much if he was able to write this book in the three weeks he was there. But nevertheless, John sees a vision of an island, something off in the distance. He goes on the quest to try and find it. And he has all kinds of troubles because he doesn't stay true to the quest. He drifts right or left. This is Lewis's dialectic of desire until finally he finds in Mother Kirk in the church, uh, the representative of God on earth, he finds the first love. It's incredible. It's really good well, stuff. And actually, when he writes that up in Pilgrim's Regress, he quotes uh, Augustine's Secure Te Projice, right? securely throw yourself in. And there's this image of kind of diving in. And he talks at his theistic conversion about diving as a potent metaphor of diving isn't when you learn to do something, it's when you learn to stop doing something. And that stopping is resisting. And so he goes in and I, you know, I never thought of this until you and I talked, he goes in, he says, at least my dives are head first. And (laughs) That's Lewis going, at least I am able to get outside of my own head. And that securely throw yourself in, which happens at the moment of the the kind of conversion moment to Christianity, to Mother Church, Mother Kirk in in Pilgrim's Regress. Lewis has that in early prose joy, and he talks about God's mythology there, too. So it's that even at the moment of his conversion, although he did not necessarily believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, he realized that he must go in head first, and he must give up all resistance, and he must accept the fall and the plunge, which is what saves him. And that's not at all dissimilar to what happens to Eustace himself when he comes to this moment of conversion and realizes that somebody else must peel him out of his skin. Aslan says, I must undress you. After Eustace tries three times to peel off the dragon skin, after Orwell tries three times to dig down to the real pillar room, it's on the third time that she looks into the mirror and to see beyond herself, she realizes that she is love. And it's this self-abandonment which caused Lewis to despair. But what he found at the end of the plunge was love was the love of God for him. And it wasn't all as bad as he, he was afraid of. Yeah, that's very good. 
Well, and, and I was just trying to key on your idea of this kind of self-abandonment, this kind of getting beyond the image to the real, to yeah. abandon how I must see things to how things must really be, to stop controlling the trajectory of my own world and allow myself to fall into something that must be beyond me. It, it is beyond us, and the grace that's operational is always breaking through. So you, you also have this feature. If you go back and look what's beneath the poem, the things that were mm -hmm. driving Lewis at the time he wrote the poem, his interest mm -hmm. in Norse mythology. It's interesting, even he and Tolkien became friends over translating Icelandic saga together. Right. And then it emerged to something more. And just like two, his reading Icelandic uh, legends, and then that led to his friendship with Arthur Greaves, and then they read these things together, and so on. So you, you you have a little bit of that undergirding this. You'll see it in the bird images that keep coming out. Uh, if there's crows, it means something bad's coming up ahead, or a blackbird, it means something bad coming up ahead. If it's a lark, there's something good coming up. When the magician yep. shoots the lark, we should know bad is coming. This is all very much Nordic imagery that's at use. And I talk about that in the second chapter. And there's a lark that sings until we have faces as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, he, he, Lewis uses the birds too, but again, that's some of the vestiges of the Nordic interests that are still percolating in him. But Lewis said this about the pagan myths. He said he believed that the pagan myths were to the pagans what the Old Testament was to the Jews. They were tutors to lead them to Christ. And we yes, find yes. this operational even in Daimler. Well, and watch this. If crows are an omen of bad news, what happens at the founding of Narnia? The crow makes the first joke, but the first joke is not something that the crow made. It's himself. And when he learns how to laugh at himself or yeah. get over himself, that's when joy can come. So. Yeah. Good. Well, we could go on for hours and hours. We will. We will. I promise you, Andrew. As long as God gives us life on this earth and we have times when we encounter, we will go on for hours and hours. And when we get to heaven, we'll go on for eternity. <laughs> oh, so we're man. stuck in this conversation, my friend. Well, uh, that's that's one of the great joys of my life. Well, I can hear the last bell being rung at um at uh, six bells, um, which is right around the corner from where we are. And so, um, so we can find more about you at drjerryroot.com. Is that correct? I think that's right. I, I can't remember. I have a web page, but I don't. We do. We've I'm got it. It's in the show notes. I'm borderline dyslexic. I just learned recently that the no switch on my computer meant on. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. Well, Trust David. He's got the correct the correct links. We also have a link in the show notes to Splendor in the Dark. I really urge listeners to not only read um, what Jerry has to say, but to read Dimer. And um, Jerry said at the beginning of the podcast, and I think that it's true, that staying close to Lewis has been a faithful guide. Uh, last night, I was asked to water the, the garden uh, here at the kilns. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what an apt metaphor. If I can just water the garden, right, uh, and clear out some of the brick. And you and I have both carried off enough brick from the kilns to build a new one. But if I can water Lewis's garden and try to make those old flowers to bloom, I think that I would have, have done well. Well, thank you again, Dr. Jerry Root, for coming on the show. 
We also want to thank you all for spending an hour with us. And thanks especially to our Patreon supporters, especially our top tier supporters. That would include Erica and Marvin, Joelle, Angela, Deborah number one, Deborah number two, Amanda, Thomas, a Narnia mouse, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud and Shane, John, Kevin, Brian and Kay, Paul and Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt and Kelly, Chris and John, James, Kate, Peter, Dave, David and Rowdy. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and we'll be continuing our poetry exploration for the rest of this month. And then in September, we'll be wrapping up this season. So please join us then when we're going, here's a cue for you, Jerry, when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.